Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. One of the great joys of the Obama campaign in 2007 and 2008 was this extraordinary group of people that came together uh, as a team uh, for a cause. And Dan Pfeiffer was an essential part of that team. He was my friend. He was my colleague. Remains so today. Um, You know him now as a Pod Save America rock star. But there was a lot I didn't know about Dan until I read his new book, his new bestseller, Yes, we still can. And I learned more about him when we sat down last week for this conversation. Dan Pfeiffer, my my old friend and colleague, you know, I, I think it's fair to say you're not necessarily the guy I'd want to play poker with. Uh, I, you know, in reading your book and doing some research for this conversation, I learned all kinds of shit that I never knew about you. Like the fact that you spent a, a, more than a few years of your childhood overseas, uh, in Brazil and Japan. How did, how did that happen? And how did I not know about it? <laughs> well, I'd say a couple of things. That One, it happened because my dad, I grew up in Delaware. My dad worked for DuPont, which is, at the as time... As many people in Delaware. As many people do. At the time, it was the largest employer in Delaware. <clears throat> and he got transferred twice to work in the overseas offices once in brazil from age where i was age five to seven to a point where my parents had never left the continental united states prior to that and they were 28 and 29 i think when they took their five-year-olds and two and a half year old sons to brazil to live which in hindsight my mom says she really loved that experience but it was insane that she did it and learned to speak i spoke portuguese as well as i spoke english my brother spoke portuguese you still no Portuguese? No, it was a real leg up in high school Spanish for a long time, but that, <laughs> that has faded quickly. My brother spoke Portuguese better than English uh, by the time we moved home, and we would translate for our parents in restaurants. We came back home to Delaware for a couple years, and then just as we got settled, my dad got transferred to the Tokyo office where we stayed for four years, which was – the whole thing was an amazing experience just because you got – I got to see – we did a lot of traveling. We saw different parts of the world. You know, and I saw that there was like this whole other world that was bigger than, and this is going to sound shocking, bigger than Wilmington, Delaware, where I grew up. Yeah. And so it was- That a, is shocking. Yeah. And I, w- w- the reason you don't know that, I don't know. I think I probably played uh, my cards too close to the vest uh, much of my career, just sort of like keep my head down, do my thing. That's sort of your, that was your signature. Yeah. yeah this the book bulldog sort of. Yeah. This, this book is a, this book is a uh, departure from that and a, uh, I think- uh, like a revelation that that was not a necessary But, you know, I, I know from writing my own book that one of the, one of the virtues or values of doing it per, for, your, for the author is it forces you to think about your life in ways that you hadn't. 
uh, to kind of think about those things that were important, that were formative in your life. And you don't really put it together until you're kind of forced to sit down and think about these things that that mattered. So my, I guess what I was curious about was, you know, the candidate we worked for together, Barack Obama, I mean, I thought one of his great virtues was uh, that he saw America, he had the he had the experience of, of understanding that there's a big world out there with different cultures. And he also saw America through the eyes of the world. And America was, uh, was on a, a, a shining city on a, on a hill. And so I, I thought that was sort of part of the great appeal of him was that he could see more broadly. But I, I, would, I would have thought along the way you might have brought it up. But. <laughs> Hey, you know, I, I had that too. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, you raise a really solid point. It, I did, uh, I mean, I actually talked uh, in the early days of the campaign when I was spending a lot of time on the plane with the guy we then called Barack uh, yes. about that shared experience. And because we were around the same ages for some of these. And yeah. had, it just what that meant to see how d- different people live, to see particularly when I was living in Brazil, a level of poverty that is not, that you not see every day here in America. You know, I went to Africa, I went to India to see those different parts of the world and think about, A, how big the world is, and then also it gives you a sense, you know, is what Obama will talk about, just the fortunate circumstances of having been born in America when we were born in America, and like the just the instant leg up that gave you in some in some quality of life for most people, not every not every person, but so you got to see sort of America reflected Sort of in two ways, right? Yeah, and 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 not take it for granted. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I worry about where we are now and how what what I think the world is looking at America and wondering what the hell is going on here, uh, and that's that's distressing. Um, but um, so you, it's fair to say that you yours is not the yours is not the kid from the wrong side of the tracks who fought his way up through uh, you fought your way up from the right side of the tracks yeah, yeah the, and, and, go ahead no I was gonna say when I was writing the book uh, my editor was like you have to tell your story I struggled a lot to tell my story I mean, as evidence Big surprise, by, yeah. by the by what uh, you know what even though we worked closely together for a decade the things you may not have known uh, about my story, uh, and I would tell my editor, like, this is not a Horatio Alger story. I was incredibly fortunate, you know, to the extent it's any story at, at all of, like, how you end up in politics, it was in a view that because I had a, because I was, had, you know, a good upper middle class life growing up, but I had parents who instilled in me the irresponsibility that came with that, took me to politics, but this was not, you know, Barack Obama's story, this was not, you know, uh, it, it wasn't right. Horatio Alger's story. But it is a story, it is a, a good story mm-hmm. sort of, of how someone makes their way mm-hmm. in politics. Um, first of all, why did you do it? Mm-hmm. I mean, your folks, I guess, had that sort of 60s activism mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but when did you sort of, I know you, you, you represented Mike Dukakis mm-hmm. or something yeah. in a debate on Japanese television yeah. when you were a kid. But when did you say to yourself, this is, this is uh, the thing I want to do? I had always been interested because my parents, like I said in the book, are not 
they weren't political in the sense that they were politicians or worked on campaigns or other than running into Joe Biden at the grocery store. We weren't hanging around, which everyone in Delaware does. It's just like a <laughs> rite of passage. Yeah. Uh, we weren't hanging around. Were you able to draw him out and engage him in conversation? <laughs> it, w- it was hard to get him started. <laughs> um, but the but we weren't like I wasn't hanging around political people. And I didn't really think of politics as a profession. Uh and but we always talked about issues in part because we were living abroad, thinking mm-hmm. about America, thinking about the world. And then my parents were just interested in the news. And so I always thought I was always interested in what was happening in the news. I read the newspaper at home uh, back when a local newspaper was something that was really yes. worth reading. Uh, and people read actually read. The yeah, the, an actual newspaper yeah. at breakfast, a piece of paper, a dead yeah. tree. And it wasn't until I went to college in Washington, D.C., at, at, George, Georgetown, at Georgetown, yeah. where I learned that politics could be something. It was like it was a hobby, something I was very interested in and read about. I read lots of books about it. But it was when I got to college here in D.C. that I learned that you could actually merge your career and your interests, your career and your hobby. Politics is to D.C. what DuPont was to Delaware. I yeah. mean, it's kind of the – I mean, actually, it's the thing that makes it both a uh, – energizing place to be and a smothering place to be because everybody is all politics all the time and that's not really the way the rest of the country is no at least not until 18 months ago (laughs) but i mean you know you do feel i always felt like when we were in the white house that we uh you know pluff always said it was like uh living in a sub uh working in a submarine and you're looking at the country through a periscope and i think washington itself is a little bit like that. I felt you lose your sense of feel, you know, in this yeah. town. Yeah, I, you know, I lived here off and on for uh, more than 20 years. I may leave for a year or two every couple of years to do campaigns, mm-hmm. and whether it was you and I us together in Chicago, South Dakota a couple of times, Tennessee, California. Uh, but I grew to appreciate that there's two types, two parts of D.C., there is the town of D.C., which is smothering. It is the political industry. It is where your social life and your work life are completely merged. The same reporters you deal with during the day, if you're a communications person, are the same people who are at the party on Saturday night or in the bar in happy hour. Then there's the city of D.C., yeah. which is very different and yes, much yes. bigger Fair and more diverse. And I did get a chance, mostly through uh, playing pickup basketball and meeting lots of people who – worked in D.C. but didn't work in politics to experience a little bit different part of it. And that's the part I miss. Living Now that I live in San Francisco, I do not miss the town of D.C., but the city of D.C. is a, an amazingly diverse, interesting place. It's just so few people who live in the town ever visit the city. Yeah. Well, you, you uh, remedied that by moving to a, a place that reflects America perfectly, right? <laughs> San yes. Francisco, Silicon that's, Valley. That's right. Um, you got a job. You had a roommate, Chad Griffin, mm-hmm. who became the leader of the Human Rights uh, uh, Council Committee uh, and uh, a great leader on, on gay rights. He, he was sort of a phenom in politics, and he got you a gig at the White House working for the vice president, Al Gore. Uh, talk about that and the kind of weird... Uh, kind of role that you played there? Sure. So I was, uh, by dint of a couple of AP courses, I was I was on pace to graduate Georgetown a semester early. And I was in no hurry to give up my college life. So I took the fall semester. So I was looking for something to do. And 
so Chad Griffin, who as you point out, was my college roommate. He had uh, left, left, grew up in Arkansas, small town in Arkansas. His is a Horatio Alger story. Uh, quit, took, uh, quit college to work to be Dee Dee Myers' assistant, who as who went, on, went on to be White House press secretary. Press secretary for Bill Clinton. Ended up working in the White House at age 19. Stayed there for a couple years. Uh, traveled the world doing advance, traveling with Bill Clinton. Just really had an amazing experience. And then went back to Georgetown yeah. to get his college degree, which is where I met him. And so Chad suggested to me that I think about interning in the White House. And so I applied. He might have made a call or two. Yes. And uh, it was not the politics-free intern program work, we yes. ran. Yes. And I ended up getting a, interning in the vice president's, vice president Al Gore's office and in the council's office. Which sort of made sense in the sense that I thought I was event. I thought politics would be something I would do for a year or two, and then go to law school and become like a real adult. Like mm-hmm. that seemed like something real adults do. And it was, it was really like going to the White House every day was really cool. Like I felt like an adult. I put on a suit. I had yeah. two suits. I just alternated them every other day, which is not a wise thing to do uh, when it's still eighty-five degrees in September in DC. And better than one suit. Better than one suit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I had a leg up in that sense, uh, so to speak. Yes, and then uh, it was, but it was like an internship, right? Like there's nothing, I knew it was not going to be glamorous. I had interned on the Hill for uh, Joe Biden uh, a couple semesters earlier, and I knew it would be copying, phone answering, getting coffee for people. But you arrived at a propitious moment because the vice president was in the crosshairs of a, of a probe. Yes. He many probes. He was being investigated by every congressional committee. And at the time, the Department of Justice was making a decision about whether they were going to appoint a special prosecutor, independent counsel, to investigate him for campaign finance for violations of campaign finance law during the 1996 election. And for so, raising money from Buddhist, they're all monks like every, there was a lot. He went to he did a, he did do a fundraiser at a Buddhist monastery, which. Having worked in the White House, you really wonder how that could slip through the cracks is a good idea. <laughs> Among many other things, uh, most of which were uh, turned out to not actually be illegal. It's more a testament to how screwed up our campaign finance laws are than uh, anything else. And somewhat a testament to that they knew he was going to be a candidate for president oh, yes, in yes, 2000. This, yeah, yeah, this had everything to do with the fact he was going to run for president a couple of years later. And so they were getting inundated with uh, document requests. We had to just, they were just turning over rooms full of documents, every schedule, every email, phone logs, anything that mentioned fundraising or campaign. And I ended up being dispatched to work in the room that housed all the documents. It was the windowless room in the attic. Uh, It was in the fifth floor of a four-story building. (laughs) And uh, we're to help sort of pull those documents for people who are looking for them. And I had... and I had filed them so many times, copied them so many times, organized them. Because every day it would be like, the FBI wants these schedules or every document from these dates. You'd have to go pull it together, put it in a binder, and give it to the attorneys to turn it over. Or the communication staff would come in and say, we've gotten a, a question from, or from the Washington Post or whoever else. We need, to, we need to track down these schedules. I'd pull them. And after too long, I memorize, I was able to, to memorize where most of the documents were. And so... It gave me this. This is a little party trick of yours, right? Yeah. I, you wrote in your book about uh, memorizing all the trivial pursuit answers yeah. when you were a kid, so that you could dominate in trivial pursuits. Yes, yeah, so it, it was an. I think ten sleepless years of working for Barack Obama has eroded the efficacy of that trick. But at the time, I had a very, very good memory for things I read, mm-hmm. and 
So I, as you mentioned, I memorized every Trivial Pursuit answer so I could beat my family in games. <laughs> uh, but then here, it just became very useful that I would know that the schedule for the day that Al Gore attended this fundraiser at this person's house would be labeled B1054, <laughs> and I could find it. And I was because of that, I was Sounds able. like bingo. I was able to find the documents in record time. And so I became the intern that everyone went to because otherwise it would take hours or days because you would have to cross check 75 lists and do it and I could just turn around and grab it. And so I got to rise to the ranks of <laughs> rise to the ranks of interns very quickly based on this. I wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's a little Dan Pfeiffer in the White House today who's uh, working on uh, on, on this very project. <laughs> As it turns out, I think they're turning over very few documents to the Republicans <laughs> so in Congress. Not so. an issue. <laughs> yes, right. Not an issue. Uh, and this led when Gore ran for president, you thought you had a job in uh, the campaign. The campaign moved to Nashville to yeah. try and reinvent itself. And in the reinvention, the guy who hired you, Chris Lehane, mm. who's a very celebrated <laughs> character mm. in politics, was dispatched from the campaign. So you arrived there with all your stuff and the guy who hired you was gone. Yeah, so I I wanted to go work on the campaign the day I graduated college. That was unavailable to me. I wanted to go work on the campaign the day they officially launched the campaign. That job was unavailable to me. When they the campaign then fired almost all of the staff and moved to Nashville as sort of a, a reinvention to, you know, to, yeah. because if things were not going well, I was not hired then. Finally, after they had been in Nashville, why didn't you take the hint, man? <laughs> it's stubbornness was, is, a, is a real is a real attribute, and I just I thought this was an amazing opportunity. I really wanted to do this, and everyone kept saying, "Next time, next time, you're like you're." If we had one more hire, you would be the hire, and I was probably young and naive enough to actually believe that at the time. And so finally, they've basically progressed. The primaries are over. They've essentially beaten Bill Bradley, who Gore was running against, and they're preparing for the general election. And Chris Lehane calls me and says, I got a job for you, moved to Nashville. I was living in LA, I just worked on a ballot initiative campaign out there at the time, and packed up all my stuff. And the day I was moving, I learned that Chris had been suspended from the campaign and, potential, and was likely to never return for having being accused of leaking something. And not, not an inconceivable thing, by the way. <laughs> it seems, it is very possible that that is what happened. And, uh, and so I didn't know what to do because I had, my car was packed and I had already signed a lease on an apartment in Nashville. And I wasn't, I didn't have, like I just worked, come off a campaign, I didn't have other money. And the place where I was gonna live in LA was about to be filled. And so I decided just to pack up my stuff and drive to Nashville and see what happened. And I got there the first day and I went in and it was, my hope was Lahaina told someone, like there was some piece of paper somewhere that says Dan Pfeiffer will do this job. And I went in on the first day and they had no idea who I was. They didn't know why I was there. They thought I was a crazy person. Because you know, people sometimes, as we know, sometimes show up at presidential campaign yeah. headquarters with all kinds of crazy ideas. And they thought I was yeah. one of those crazy people. And so I ended up answering the phones as a volunteer for a few days uh, until I eventually got a job. And by job, I mean I had a desk and a phone, but I didn't get a paycheck for uh, months. Yeah, but that's sort of, that's, this is not an unusual story in mm. politics. And actually, um, I talk, when I talk to young people, I say, well, how do, you, how do you get to where you are? Oftentimes it's like that, where you just plunge in and just by dint of doing all the shitty little things people don't yeah. want to do, 
you you end up getting recognized, much like you did in the White House with your party trick. So um, uh, this began a series of events. Um, you ended up working for um, in a in a South Dakota Senate race, uh, and then you finally you were going to have a significant role in another presidential campaign in 2004 talk about that and so i worked for in a south dakota senate race for tim johnson who was running he was the junior senator for south dakota he was running for re-election democrats lost up and down the ballot in 2002 but we won our race uh by 524 votes and you were by then doing communication i was a communications director on that campaign yeah. and i had gotten that by dint of being one of the uh rare people in Democratic Communications who was willing to move to South Dakota to do the race. Move to South Dakota in the winter to do the race. Uh-huh. And, and what most people thought was a sure loser race. And it was an amazing campaign team run by Steve Hildebrand, who worked yeah, for us in Obama. Who, and many of the people yeah. who made up the o- Obama 08 campaign were scattered. We'll talk about Hildy in yeah. a minute because he's one of the originals in American politics. And so at the day after the election, uh, my cell phone rings and it is Tom Daschle who was the Democratic leader of the Senate, and a truly- Not the call you were expecting. Not the call I was expecting. I thought it was just some reporter, because uh, it was just a, a 202 DC area code number. And I ans- answered it, and Tom Dasher was a, vi- he is, he talks, he has a very soft voice. Yes. And he was like, Dan, it's Tom. <laughs> and I was like, Tom who? Oh, oh, Tom Daschle. <laughs> and, and he said to me, I'm thinking, I'm very seriously thinking of running for president. And first, he thanked me for winning this race. It was the, it was a rare bright spot for him as the Senate yeah. leader in a tough election year. And it meant a lot to him because he was very close to Tim Johnson personally. And he said he was thinking seriously running for president. And if he did run, he would want me to work for him. And he was simply asking me to hold off on taking another job until he made his decision in a few weeks. And I was blown away. I couldn't even believe that the Democratic leader of the Senate is asking me to work on his campaign. Yeah. I thought I'd made it. And so I immediately agreed uh, to say I would absolutely do it and then spend the next several months preparing for this campaign that was almost certainly going to happen uh, until it didn't. Yeah. Uh, he, he decided not to run. Yeah. And uh, you went and worked on his. He decided to run for re-election yes. instead. Yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it and it and he he lost. Unusual for mm. the the leader to lose. Um, talk about that experience of uh, that. That was probably the most uh, dramatic defeat that you experienced in your whole life in politics. Yeah. I mean, I had worked for Al Gore when he lost, but I was a cog in the machine. Yeah. I didn't feel personally responsible for what happened. I, like, I, I had enough self-awareness to know that the Northeast Communications, Regional Communications Director, was not deciding the fate of the campaign one way or the other. was not in charge of field in Florida. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. I was not in charge of, of, of what the ballot was going to look like in Florida. Um, but I was the deputy campaign manager of this race, of Tom Dashwood's reelect, and was very, I had grown very personally close to Tom. I thought he was just a truly great like a really good human being who was in politics for the right reasons. And we lost and we, and it was brutal. I mean, it was really brutal. The, I, Steve you, wrote, you wrote a little about that. Yeah, Steve Hildebrand, who was campaign manager, and Pete Rouse, are, who we worked in the White House with, yes. who was Tom Dash's longtime chief of staff. Steve, Pete, and I had to go to the, go to the hotel room where Tom was watching the results with his family uh, at, you know, early, like two or three in the morning that 
the, on election night, election morning after, and tell him that we've looked at the numbers and he wasn't, he wasn't going to, we weren't going to pull it out. And it was just such a brutal thing to do. Tom's mother, who was a, sort of a figure in South Dakota politics, everyone knew Tom's mom, Betty, she was around the campaign a lot. And I basically had to console her as she was, a, a, Tom was a, took the results like, he he's he'd been in politics enough to know what was happening, and but his mom was very upset by it, and it was just it was heartbreaking, and I felt like I just felt deeply responsible for what had happened, and that I, we had let down not just Tom and all these young kids who worked on the campaign, but also just people in South Dakota. And the the next week we were we were packing up the campaign, and getting ready to head back east, which is brutal. Everywhere you went, like people. I had spent a lot of time doing South Dakota television in my role in the campaign. So like I would get recognized every once in a while by sort of Democrats in South Dakota. And like we would be like the campaign staff would be in a bar afterwards drowning our sorrows and someone would come up and start, start crying. And it was just really, it was a real, it was a rough experience. And I really thought about quitting politics. It's sort of like if Tom Daschle can't win to someone who I, he had lost to John Thune, who I thought was a, sort of one of the, yeah. an empty suit and sort of a, a pretty cynical human being that maybe this wasn't the right thing for me. And what 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 made you change your mind? Be, I, this is an important, actually an important parable because um, I think there's a lot that discourages people today. What what kept you in the, in well, the game there? The two things. The most basic is I had I had a I had rent to pay and I needed a job. I didn't have time to sort of explore other things, but I also everything that fueled me after whether it was after Al Gore's loss or Tom Daschle's loss was this. I was, I still had this sort of optimistic, romantic view of politics. It was being tested on a regular basis during the Bush years, but this view that there was something better. If I, I mean, it sort of is a little like you know, the person sitting at the slot machine in Vegas, just thinking the next pull of the arm is gonna be the one that delivers. But I just felt like I had this view. I'd wanted, I had like read about the Kennedys, studied RFK's 68 yeah. campaign. I'd watched the documentaries about it. And I just, there, it felt, and yeah, I'd watched the War Room, the documentary of the Bill Clinton 92 campaign, that there was, there was this chance for something to feel more like a cause in a campaign. Yeah. Everything to that point had felt, even the wins I'd had, yeah. had felt a little bit like moving things, moving the pieces around the chessboard. Like, oh, we have one more Democratic senator, which is great, but that just means we'll be able to stop. We have a slightly better chance to stop Bush from doing bad things. And it felt sort of clinical and uh, and not re- like you can feel it, right? And I thought that maybe there so was a you chance. Were, for you more. were looking for the, the bigger thing. I was looking for the bigger thing. I didn't find it right away, but well, you went to work for Evan Bayh for a while, who turned out not to be the bigger thing. He was not the bigger thing. Like Evan is uh, senator from Indiana, former governor, uh, very accomplished yeah. legislator and governor, mm-hmm. and there was a there was a rationale because mm-hmm. he was sort of a uh, middle of the road kind of guy, and he made the argument that mm-hmm. he could yeah. uh, span the, the 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 great divides. Yeah, that, that was also the view of a lot of sort of D.C. political conventional wisdom was after John Kerry's loss in 2004, what we needed was a moderate red state Democrat, someone who could win over the voters. But who, that sounds a little like moving the chess pieces around. It was. It was like, I don't pretend to be. I took that job for two reasons. Uh, one. Pay the rent. Pay the rent. I also thought I wasn't going to get hired in politics again. So, you know, Tom, I was I was the Debbie campaign manager on the first Senate leader to lose in 50 years. And 
and the second in history. And that was a, you know, so the fact that someone wanted to hire me, and I'm very grateful to our former colleague, Anita Dunn, who yes. helped me get that job. I also, I went and met Evan, and I liked him. I thought yeah. he was a good... He's a likable person. He's a very likable person, a good person. And it was not, I did not have a finely honed sense of my own political ideology at the time, but I was certainly more liberal than Evan was. Now, I went to go work for Evan just as he was going to run for president, so we got more progressive pretty fast. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, my first There's day— There's a lot of that going around yeah, today. Yeah, my, my very first day in the office was the day he voted against Condoleezza Rice as Secretary of State. And I was like, I am here. I've done it. <laughs> and uh, But he, he was planning on running for president. I went to Iowa a couple dozen times, New Hampshire. I got to get the feel. Great story of- in your book about the, uh, the uh, Harkin steak fry yeah. in uh, 2006. And Evan Bai was one of the speakers. Yeah. And there was another speaker there named Barack Obama. Yeah. And he was being squired around. I mean, I obviously was involved with, yeah. with him at the time. And it was a kind of, it wasn't, both feet weren't in the presidential yeah. thing at the time. But he showed up there with this guy, Steve Hildebrand, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. Hildy, who's a, a guy who had been involved in, running uh, the state with Paul Tews mm-hmm. for, uh, for Gore, yeah. really knew Iowa. And we knew that if Hildebrand showed up with Obama at that steak fry, that alone <laughs> would be a signal. But you tell a funny story there about, uh, about being with Bai there and, and the sort of, sort of being one of the satellites or it's, yeah sort of revolving yeah. around this bright luminescence. Well, there are two separate stories here. So there's the Iowa Steak Fry, Bai was not at. Um, he was, I was just in. Jesus, I set up the story so well. I know. I, I was going to let you roll with it, but then I thought. Yeah, it's I, in the book. Yeah, so. <laughs> so people would probably figure I it out. I really did read it. So. Yeah, I know. I believe you. Uh, and so he, this is probably more statement of my writing than you're reading. But the, so at the Iowa Steak Fry, I had really, I had sort of, mi- well, let me, tell, let me tell the other story and we'll do it that way. Yeah. So the Iowa, Bai ended up in New Hampshire the Saturday. Ah, uh, yes, New yes, Hampshire, yes. The Saturday after he had announced his exploratory committee. We had announced right, he was running for right. president. We had gone on ABC, George Stephanopoulos to announce it. This was like, it was happening. Yeah. yeah. And we felt we were we we followed that by trip to Iowa that day. We were in Iowa two days. It was the exact trip that a not particularly well known wannabe presidential candidate would do. Like we met with all the right people, we got some good press, came back home feeling good about ourselves. We're sitting around the office. I had moved to Bai's political action committee at that time, and then we get new. And we're headed to New Hampshire Friday night for Saturday and Sunday of events, and then we get news that Barack Obama is headed to New Hampshire on the exact day we're going. And now the and the Obama for president buzz is taken off everywhere, and I was very skeptical at the time that Obama was going to run for president. And I had never met Obama. I had not. Uh, I hadn't really paid a ton of attention to him, other than a bunch of my former colleagues, most notably Pete Rouse, had worked for him. Yeah, Pete Rouse, we should point out, was mm-hmm. Daschle's chief of staff. Was up here on the hill for thirty years. Mm-hmm. We're sitting in Washington today. Mm-hmm. Was really Yoda. I mean, he, like, knew everything about how the Congress worked. He had been involved in uh, overseeing some of these campaigns. And uh, Obama snagged him after the uh, Daschle defeat and persuaded him not to retire, which was 
Pete's first instinct, or at least he purported that that was his first instinct. And he became uh, just an incredibly important figure in Obama's ascendance. That was my first sign that Obama was something pretty special because I had been with Pete the day he had dinner. He had a famous dinner with Obama where Obama tricked tricked him, convinced him to give up (laughs) retirement. Yes. And... I was with Pete like hours beforehand, sitting in his office in Dash's office as we were packing it up. And Dash and Pete said basically he was doing the dinner because Dick Durbin, who yeah, senator uh, from Illinois, other senator from Illinois, who da- who was Pete's first boss yes. on Capitol Hill before Dash, was a congressman, yes, uh, told asked him to do it, and. Pete was just doing it to be nice, and he was planning on headed to the vineyard where Pete likes to hang out and all these plans, and he came back the next day basically with a job, (laughs) and I was like, oh, this is something real. But so I but Pete and then Steve Hildebrand uh, had been telling me for months how great Obama was, and that if Obama ran for president, I had to to work for him. And I was like, well, I can't. I have this other job working for Evan Bayh who is also admirable loyalty there. Admirable. I was running for president. And even, and even if you, I mean, loyalty is actually a thing people should have in politics because it's the, A, it's the right thing to do. And B, it was just like Evan being good to me. I I owed it to him, even if I thought his chances of winning were pretty small. Uh, But so we're going to, we're going to New Hampshire on the day uh, that Obama is going to be there. And I know we're going to get, it's going to like the, the image for the press of our little normal sized New Hampshire style gatherings and Obama's Obama huge Obama always had a big entourage following. Yeah. So I get to the airport to go there to go to fly to New Hampshire and there is every reporter is there. Just everyone's on a flight. It was like one or two direct Southwest DC, Baltimore to New ha- Manchester flights a day. And I see all these reporters and they're all gathered around together I was like, what is happening? I get there and I see it as Robert Gibbs, our yes. colleague who went on to be White House press secretary, who was Barack Obama's Senate communication director at the time, basically doing a press avail in the <laughs> middle of our gate. And uh, a reporter says to me, uh, Dan, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm heading to my boss is going to New Hampshire today. <laughs> He's like, I thought you I thought you worked for Evan Bay. I was like, I do. He's also going to New Hampshire today. <laughs> and we get there and we have a good trip, but everywhere we go, it is every all anyone's talking about is Obama. And the last our last event where, you know, we have this great event hosted by a state legislator in New Hampshire and we're feeling good about ourselves. Like, oh, maybe we maybe we can do this. And maybe and maybe Obama won't run. But as we're getting ready to go, the our driver asked the state the host for directions back to the airport because we're going to fly right out of town. And he's like, "Well, normally I tell you to take the highway, but given the traffic from the Obama event, I take the back road." <laughs> Ouch! Yeah. Evan Bay dropped out of the presidential campaign three days later. <laughs> and you uh, you uh, did jump over to the uh, Obama campaign. I remember well uh, when when you joined. You know, it's interesting. I, when I read your book and you talked about RFK, who I <laughs> remember, you don't, uh, you can't. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a conversation with Obama when he was deciding to run. And I said, you know, we haven't had a really idealistic campaign for president since I was a kid when yeah. Bobby Kennedy ran. And what we should try and do is recreate that sense that there's real meaning to this and you do have the chance to change the world uh, through this process and I think that we I think we did accomplish that in 2008 you know I've been around a long time in this I don't think there was ever a campaign in my lifetime quite like that one no it was it was one of those things that even though it was really hard at times it always felt special 
It just it just did. You just knew. You weren't sure it was going to end in victory, but you just knew you were part of something very special. The person we were working for, the people we were working with, the people we were who were out there that we'd see at the rallies or volunteering. It just it had a feel. It's just it, like it was unlike anything I'd ever felt in my life, and it probably am unlikely to ever feel. Again. Well, that's one of my qu- yeah. uh, questions is, uh, can, I mean, I still believe in that. You know, I, I very much believe that politics has meaning and that in a democracy, there are tools that we're given to bring about change. And uh, the, the only thing that ultimately uh, defeats us is if we, if we decide to walk away and not use those tools. So the question is, can we, can we recapture that sense uh, in these, in, the, in a, what is a very dark time and a cynical time, that there are, there there is a better path here. I do. I don't know whether you or I will ever recapture it. That will ever like lightning doesn't necessarily strike twice for people. I think in our politics, it is very possible, and it may be the silver lining to the very dark cloud of the Trump era. I mean, I have through dint of. Uh, my other role as co-host of Pod Save America, I've been around a lot of people who are pretty special this for the last year and a half. And I've had a chance to be at the Women's March, the March for Our Lives. I was at the San Francisco airport the day, you know, the, with the protests against the Muslim ban. And there is something happening out there. There mm-hmm. absolutely is. And what is I am really struck by, and it's sort of counter to – what you sort of, the way it's covered uh, in the news or on Twitter is, it's not anger. There's, there's, there is anger on behalf of the people, of the children who are separated or the immigrants who are being demonized. But whether it's these protests or the Positive America shows that I, you know, we go to every couple of weeks, is that there is a, there is a feeling of sort of joy in people who believe in the same yeah, thing well, being together. And yeah. so, Like the tools are there in the sense that there are people waiting to be led. And are we going to find the right leader for that? Yeah, I think that's the question. And and in these midterms, whether people will, uh, you know, will turn outrage into outcomes. I mean, and I know you guys are all about that project. I asked Mm -hmm. Favreau when Mm -hmm. we did this a few months ago, you know, are you you guys doing journalism? He Mm -hmm. said, no, we're we're trying we're trying to get people activated. To, which is, I think, very much um, in the spirit of what 2008 was, was all about. I mean, it genuinely, change was not a slogan. Change was, uh, change was uh, real, was a real objective. Um, I, I want to get back to this because I want to talk about sort of how we ended up where mm. we are. But I do want to talk about your White House mm. years. Yeah. Uh, because I think one of the compelling things about your book is your description of what it was like to work there, um, both the uh, the sort of majesty of walking into that building every day, which is a really anybody who works there who doesn't have that feeling shouldn't be working there. Um, but it's also really hard. It's a hard job. And reading your book reminded me about waking up before dawn getting over there for the seven o'clock meeting, uh, you know, and working until eight, nine at night. And every single second is filled with something genuinely consequential. 
mean, everything you're dealing with has real-life consequences for someone somewhere and sometimes for, for lots of people. Um, it's hard. You know, you, you kind of, uh, you, you devote a little bit of a time to this, but you almost worked yourself to death. <laughs> I did. Glad I, you can laugh about yeah. it. I'm, well, if you can't, I mean, yeah. I'm fine now. So, yeah. I mean, I did. I, talk, I tell the story in the book, but I, I, was, I was a obsessive workaholic. And I really believed that sleep was a waste of time. That if I was sleeping, I was some, I was cheating. Right. And so I drove myself in ways that were short sighted and unhealthy. And it came to a breaking point in 2013. It was just the pace of two years of the campaign. At that point, for, you know, the entire first term, you know, helping out with, with you guys in the 2012 campaign. And then just basically going, you know, I tell the story in the book about we won reelection. We had a nice little gathering in your suite long after the bars closed till uh, the, the, the mini bars were empty. Yeah, and I'm still paying that off. <laughs> yeah. And the, we woke up the next, I woke up the next morning to a call from the White House Chief of Staff saying, uh, can you get, from White House Chief of Staff's office saying, can you get on a call to talk about the next legislative crisis? It was right back into it. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, I found myself at a reporter's dinner and lost half the feeling in my body and couldn't figure out what it was. Decided after way too long to call the doctor, or actually to call our friend Alyssa Mastermonico to yes. have her call the doctor, because I couldn't, at this point did not have control, enough control of my hand to, or a good enough left hand, which you would know from having played basketball with me, yes. to, uh, to work the phone to figure out the number. That's frightening. And uh, I ended up in the emergency room at George Washington Hospital, uh, where I spent, had, it was a pretty scary experience, but it was very much like I was an out-of-body experience to watch myself on the ER where they, like, ripped my shirt off, that everyone's going crazy because my blood pressure was at a really high level. Um, couldn't, eventually, blood pressure comes down. They couldn't really figure out what it was. They sent me home, prescribed rest and less stress, which is not – it's like, yeah, that's, that's, like not, that's not an option, right? Yeah. Uh, and went back – but I went home, slept a few hours, and went to the White House the next day because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. Went to one meeting – Walked out of that meeting uh, and then had the exact same thing happen again and got rushed back to the hospital this time in something resembling an ambulance uh, where I spent the next few days in the stroke unit at George Washington Hospitals. They were they were uh, examining me. Eventually, after many hospital trips, uh, I was determined that I had uh, my blood pressure. I have a blood vessel in my brain that will spasm if my blood pressure reaches a certain level, which it was reaching due to lack of sleep, stress, and uh, high, and just sort of natural high blood pressure. And I'm curious, was Ronnie Jackson the doctor at the White House he at was. the time? So he, I mean, he was instrumental in, he, in, in, in saving you at a critical time. I am forever grateful to Ronnie and his team. The president was in Russia. Ironically enough, uh, on a trip when I had my first incident, Ronnie's staff told him that what had happened, and Ronnie was monitoring my care at all hours of the night from Russia. As soon as I got back, he came to see me. And then as I progressed through various sort of repeats of this incident, Ronnie was with me, with me every step of the way. 
and he yeah i mean i had i i remembered that and other things and so i was saddened by what yeah. happened with him I, I think he was foolish to accept this appointment yeah. from trump i don't think he was particularly qualified no. for that job but my experience was very positive with him and one of the things i remember even though i was gone from the white house was that he was very helpful and caring for you yeah at that time so i um, tell this story about ronnie that i think says a lot about him as a person which is one of our colleagues who was not one of the most senior white house staffers but his father had a really serious heart attack while we were on an overseas trip and ronnie from the overseas trip monitored the care and talked to the doctor even though he has no obligation to do this to make sure and then we were in chicago where the father was was recovering uh on a trip an overnight trip, Ronnie during his time off went to the hospital to check on the staffer's father. Uh, no yeah. obligation, yeah. like that part of his job. And so despite everything else that people have said about him, I always remember those things. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's emblematic of the fact that we turn each other into cartoon characters. Yeah. And everybody around this president ends up sort of turning into a cartoon character. Yeah. And that that was one of the reasons why Ronnie, one of the many reasons why he probably shouldn't have yeah. taken uh, taken that appointment. How's the media environment? I mean, this is uh, this is uh, uh, one that you can hmm. tee off on and you write about it. But even in your your career is shorter than hmm. mine. Uh, but talk about how the media environment has changed over the course of your career. I mean, everything has changed, right? Like I always say, I always talk about sort of the ten years of Obama, which would be January two thousand and seven when he announced for president to January of 2017 when he left. And you think about in that time, when we started, Facebook was something only college kids used. Twitter was something only people in the tech industry used. The the smartphone was not yet invented. You couldn't watch news. Yeah, phones were still stupid. Yeah, they're, they're, we had Blackberries, yeah. if you were lucky, otherwise you had a flip phone. Um, and over the course of that 10 years, the way people re consumed and distributed information changed as much in that 10 year period as maybe any 10-year period in history other than the invention of the telegram and the printing press. And that has had real consequences, good and bad, for how uh, politics is covered. How everything's covered, but politics being yeah. our industry of choice and probably the most consequential of those. How, how the NBA is covered is interesting, but not particularly consequential to the daily lives of people who aren't in the NBA. Yes, um, although I consume a lot of that. Yeah, the, I, <laughs> as do I. Yeah. And, the, and I think, and I talk about this in the book, that that... I think Democrats in particular, politicians in general, but Democrats in particular, have been slow to understand, adjust their strategies to reflect the change. And we're, so we feel always a few years behind. And that came to fruition in 2016 when we lost control of the conversation in a way that led to Donald Trump winning an election. He had no business winning. Part of that was, of course, his willingness to... His great inspiration yeah. was that if you light yourself on fire every day, that people are going to uh, pay attention to the fire and nothing else. Yeah. And he, and and every day since he's basically dominated uh, the media, oftentimes by just being outrageous and saying things that are provocative. And um, I mean, how if you're advising a candidate for twenty uh, twenty, and there are certain technical yeah. things, right? Yeah. We we didn't have a whole social media unit in the press shop yeah. in 2008, but we did in 2012. Yeah. But if you're advising a candidate in 2020, and I know you're too prosperous now <laughs> as a Pod Save America guy, 
to, uh, to, to, to lend your talents that way. I don't know about that. All right, good. Well, <laughs> note, note that, you 50 people thinking of running for president, that Pfeiffer is in the market. So anyway, <laughs> but what would you advise people about how to deal with not, not just this media environment, but this, this president? Well, when I was communications director in the White House, we, I spent probably 80% of my time thinking about, maybe more, thinking about the traditional press. What interview, who would President Obama interview with? What reporter would we first tell his policy about to get a, a big bang? What time should we schedule his event so it would be best for network news? And that is a very outdated way of thinking about things. And I think I would abolish the, I would basically destroy the entire traditional communication structure of a campaign. And I would think of it more as content distribution. And that some of that content is social media that you do, like you guys did so well in 2012. Some of it is content you create, whether it's videos, memes, and some of it, and some of that content is stories written by the traditional media. And the challenge that Democrats have is it is not the press's fault that Donald Trump is president. It is not. They did plenty of reporting that was that a small fraction of which should have convinced the country that Donald Trump should never have been president. The challenge that Democrats have is we think that once we get the story written, that is enough. And that is not the case. Like what we have to do now, what it's sort of a last mile problem where we have to have an entire operation built around getting that story in front of the voters we most yeah. care about. And that can be through paid digital advertising. That can be through sort of online organizing where we're getting our supporters, not just knock doors, but also share persuasive information with voters that we can identify via data. You know, I think part of the challenge is that, uh, and this is particularly true of digital, is you you can, there, you talk about the last mile, there's also the last inch, mm -hmm. and that is getting people to actually look at the material yeah. you're sending. So just getting digital advertising yeah. to the right email address uh, or text uh, uh, number uh, does not guarantee that people no. are going to actually pay attention to it, and that's, uh, and that's a challenge. Let me ask you a question about, I, I think about a lot. Um, you know, I'm really uh, proud of what uh, Obama accomplished in his second term, just big historic things. Um, you know, the climate change agreements, all the many things you worked on, Cuba and Iran mm -hmm. agreement and, uh, you know, some uh, uh, criminal justice reform stuff. And But um, it struck me after the 2016 election that uh, a lot of my neighbors in rural Michigan had Trump signs in their yard. And, um, and some of them had voted for Barack Obama, but... I could see them saying sort of like, what does any of this have to do with me? And I know that, that Obama won the 2012 election in part because we had a, and you were a part of this, a single-minded focus on the, on, on the economy and the middle class. Um, should there, a, a, it's hard when you have limited amount, amount of time to communicate, space mm. to communicate. I know he was doing stuff on the economy in the second term, overtime pay and so on. Should more of an effort been made to communicate a consistent economic message in the second term of his administration? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. I, I would say a couple things about this. And this is a conversation you and I have had through, our, through much of uh, that second term as well. 
And you are 100% right that the reason, I don't think it's just one of the reasons, I think is the That's all I primary to reason. Yes, the primary reason that President Obama won re-election was because he ran a campaign that was so disciplined on the economy. Everything came back to... And the economies that related to middle class and middle value. class aspirations. It's a proxy aspirations. for values, yes, right? Yeah. It's a proxy for right, values and exactly. character of the candidates. And that thread was lost in 2016. In part, it's much harder. It was... It's harder to do that against Trump than anyone else. I don't think the right effort was necessarily made in 2016. Yeah. And that sort of discipline of this is the story we're going to tell, we're going to tell it every day was lost. In the second term, it was a battle between two things. One, the big, bold economic things you, you can do the big levers you can pull require Congress. Yes. We did. We never had Congress right. in that second term. And we lost the Senate in 2014. And then you also feel, so you do the things you can do. And there's, unfortunately, the economic basket of purely executive actions is pretty limited. And the press is smart enough to know that, that overtime rule is interesting, but not, it's only, it can only affect a certain number of people. And it, from the time you announce to the time it goes in place is a couple of years. And we also felt this, pressure. Obama would say this to us all the time, that this is the best opportunity we'll have to do the most good for the most people. In our no, lives. and I yeah. so appreciate that. Yeah. And I understand that he, he wanted to, he had things that he felt needed to be yeah. done, should be done. And he wasn't going to, and he wasn't going to waste one second of yeah. time on, uh, and say to himself afterwards, we should have tried. Yeah. And um, I, I there, it's really a matter of emphasis. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about it, about what happened in 2016. I do think the absence of a persistent and persuasive and authentic message that related to what people were actually experiencing in the economy was a big, uh, was a big default on yeah. the part of the Clinton, Clinton campaign. It was hard for us to do it in the White House absent paid advertising, you know, yeah. where you controlled. No, and that we had that, we had yeah. that, we had that opportunity yeah. in the campaign. Uh, tell me about uh, uh, Pod Save America and how, I mean, you guys have stumbled into something stumbled that, into that has guess. to be shocking even to you. It, yeah, it is shocking to us. It still surprises us. I mean, Radio City Music Hall, right? Yeah. You film at Radio City Music Hall, and you're not even a rock cat. <laughs> that's, 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 in every sense of the word, we are not a rock cat. <laughs> and if people came to see the rock cats, they would have been very disappointed by that show. Um, it was, I think a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. You know, we happened to launch, you know, we had existed as a, under a different banner in 2016. We famously got 2016 very wrong. Uh, like most of America, yes, but join the club, but particularly us. And uh, it, we reinvented it to reflect the Trump time, the era, Trump era. And as you point out, that we're not journalists; we're in it to use a platform to get people to do things that help elect progressive politicians. And we have we are shocked to this day from when we started that people listen to us at the volume, you know, sort of the quantity that they do, and that. We ha- that we have this platform, and it's kind of why I wrote the book. It's kind of who I wrote the book for, the people that we see at our shows, people who listen to us, people who are – in our audience is a lot of people. It's very interesting because it is people – they're often of an age, not exclusively, but a, a large group are in their 20s, and they spent most of their sort of like young adult to adult life in a world where Barack Obama was president, and everything felt fine. And Hillary was going to win. 
and the things that they cared about the, made sense. We're going to be fine and have been sort of shocked into a realization that it's not going to, always going to be fine by Trump's election and are looking for a place to understand politics and a place to understand what to do about where we're in and the chance and the opportunity and I think responsibility we have to talk to those people is, I mean, it is a, a gift that I can have a job where I get to work with an incredible group of people, but also get to talk to and see these people and have this platform to say things about politics. I was worried when I left the White House about two things. One, that here's what I thought. I, I wasn't going to miss the long hours. I wasn't going to miss being on call 24-7. I was going to miss the people I worked with. Yes. And sort of just talking about politics and being a part of it because it's a passion. I'll tell you what, man, and, you, and I mm. probably have said this to you before, mm. but, I mean, we had the opportunity mm. to work together. Favs and those guys love it. And I met with them every day, yeah. you know, the Wordsmith meeting. Yeah. And uh, so I had the early... Yeah version of yeah. uh, Pod Save America. And it, w- it was one of the most enjoyable pieces of it. The yeah. other thing about leaving the White House, as you know, is it is impossible to work there and not have your identity sort of meld with the identity of the mm-hmm. principal. And recapturing your own identity, to me, is like important work when you leave the White House, because you can live in the shadow of the person you work for for the rest of your life. You guys have kind of created your own identity, which is very liberating. It is. It's liberating and weird. The I did a uh, I appeared at a phone bank for John Ossoff when he was running yeah. for Congress in San Francisco. And it was billed like in face on Facebook as Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer. And our former colleague, David Plouffe, sent it to me. And he's like, great. Now you're Pod Save America's uh, Dan Pfeiffer, not Barack Obama's Dan Pfeiffer. Which is, like, w- which is good. Um, you, I, I think maybe you and I disagree on this. And maybe a, bun- hmm. a lot of your listeners disagree on this. I, I, uh, and this became like the big civility war hmm. online. Um, I, I question whether the you know, throwing Sarah Sanders out of a restaurant is actually constructive in terms of bringing about the change that <laughs> we want. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we want to get to that point where we have, like, what I said, red plates and blue plates, where there are some restaurants you can go into and, and, and some you can't. Um, this created a, just, just a torrent of outrage uh, online. And, um, I mean, what do you make of this whole argument? Because, you know, a lot of the outrage was, some of it was actually aimed at Obama and all of, all the of folks who work for him for being too nice. Yeah. So I don't know that you and I disagree a ton on it. Um, I, like, I would advise, if people were asking me, like, what should they do? I would advise people to, this is like the corollary to Barack Obama's don't boo vote. Yes. It's like don't harass vote. Yes. Now, I, what I find myself when I look at this, and this is not really, this is not the point you were making, but two things about it. One is, I think as a political culture and a journalistic culture, we ought to spend as much time trying to understand the feelings of the immigrant LGBT workers at the restaurant who were so offended by what Trump is doing and so concerned about their own lives that they didn't want to serve Sarah Huckabee Sanders, as we do trying to understand either Trump's voters or Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I think that's I think a blind that's, spot. That's a, that's a fair, very fair observation. And then, But I also feel like— But then it got extrapolated. You know, Maxine Waters yeah. did her thing. And yeah. And I think the mistake here is uh, I just can't care about the debate. Like, I just—it is like, like it's the—it is not— like, if I owned a restaurant, would I throw Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of it? Probably not. If I was a, 
do, would I incur if I had a friend who owned a restaurant? Would I encourage him not to do it? Probably not. I just don't care where Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets her farm to table cuisine. I don't really care if Stephen Miller has to throw a sushi away. And what I don't want Democrats you didn't have to throw the sushi away. Yeah, that I mean, I said that on Twitter last night that that was like a perfectly like a perfect Trump example metaphor for Trumpism, which is just spite you know cutting off your nose to spite your own face uh, or whatever that. Yeah, is. that's it. Okay. That's close. Um, and some many people pointed out to me that. If the bartender gave you a finger, you may not trust that no one spit in your sushi. So maybe that was the right move. Yeah. Well, but, but I interesting. Did, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. But yeah. Yeah, I think Democrats should not be on the defensive about this. And I think the the worst instincts of inside the bubble, like elected officials, happened here, which is Maxine Waters said what she said. It was interpreted to be something more aggressive than what she <coughs> actually said. She didn't say attack Trump people. No, she, she had inside she violence. She said basically she was encouraging people to do harassment. Harassment like that like was done to Kirsten Nielsen when she went to a right. Mexican restaurant. Would I do that? No. Would I have encouraged? Would I, am I encouraging people to do it? No. No, I think your point, your initial point is right though. My thing is, you know, turn uh turn anger into action and 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 yeah. outrage into outcomes. Yeah. Um what about the Supreme Court appointment of Kavanaugh? You and I were talking before we started recording um, you know I think that it's important to fully vet him and understand what it means to have him on the Supreme Court uh, I worry a little bit that people are getting stoked up here and that it's uh, you know at the at the end of the day people these senators are going to end up doing what they were going to do at the beginning which is follow their political instincts so Susan Collins and Murkowski will find an uh, his evasive answers on row enough to say yeah. You know, we think he'll respect precedent, as they did on the last uh, uh, appointment. Uh, and uh, red state Democrats, knowing that the thing's going to go through anyway, will cast, some of them will mm -hmm. cast a vote for him. And he will be on the Supreme Court. And I think there's this expectation that, it, that it, you know, there's a real opportunity to stop it. And that people, I, I wonder if people can be disappointed at the end or angry that it wasn't stopped. I think... There's a lot of cynicism around the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're living in a sea of cynicism these days. And it's well-earned cynicism, given what's happening in Washington. I think that it is incumbent upon Democratic leaders uh, and sort of Democratic voices, and you'll hear us, hear us say this on Pod Save America, is to be honest and forthright about expectations here, that we are likely to lose this battle. That is absolutely likely to lose mm -hmm. it. It is just a mere fact if we don't control the right. Senate. I but, mean, yeah. but I think we should fight like hell anyway. Yeah. Because I think yeah. it, it is important to let – I think we, as Democrats, we need to make people under believe in the importance of these court appointments more than anything else. Because, you know, I did an event uh, – Well, how about in the importance of elections? Yeah, you know, yeah. It seems to me that if he gets confirmed, which he will, yeah. that – this will have been the die will have been cast yeah. on November sixth of yeah. two thousand and sixteen. Uh, it, it is. This is the you know when our former boss said elections have consequences, which every Republican tweets back at us. Yes. In this world, yes, we have to make people know that. But what we also have to do is Republicans. I I do believe that one of the reason main reasons Donald Trump won, aside from Russia, Jim Comey's decision to unburden himself in the, in the waiting days of the election is the fact that... And, and a bad Democratic campaign. Yeah, uh, is that McConnell held that Supreme Court seat open. So it, it created a permission structure, one of our old favorite sayings, yeah. for Republicans to do it. I did an event for, like, a, it was a speaking gig with our CNN colleague, S.E. Cup, before mm -hmm. the election. And it was 
and we had done a bunch of these together. They were almost always either college kids who were progressive or never Trumpers. And this one was insurance executives. Uh, they were owners of insurance agencies around the country. And it was the day after the first debate. And they asked us in NSE, who was a ardent vocal opponent of Trump, we get up there, yes. we do our thing, and the crowd goes nuts. They're screaming at SE, they're screaming at me, and it's all because of the Supreme Court seat. Yeah. Like even if they didn't like Trump, the argument was they that they would that Trump that Trump would appoint a conservative yeah. row flipping justice. Yeah. And, De- and Democrats could have made that same argument, particularly to Bernie Sanders supporters, about Citizens United. Yes. And we seeded that argument around the courts. And so if we have this fight and we fight it well and lose, hopefully the takeaways will be, to your point, that elections matter, but also election- the court matters. And that that is, a re- that is something we have to think about in our elections. And Republicans are far ahead of us on that. Dan Pfeiffer, good <laughs> to be with you, buddy. Yes, we still can. Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump, like everything Pod Save America touches these days, a runaway bestseller. But I'm sure there are copies left, so go out and get it. Uh, and it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.